This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Uh, hello, I'm Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I'm pleased to welcome you to another installment in our series on doing translational research. Uh, and my guest today is Dr. Mardell McCuskey-Shepley, who is a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Design and Environmental Analysis and Associate Director in the Cornell Institute for Healthy Futures, which perhaps we'll talk a bit about today. The Mardell is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and the American College of Healthcare Architects. She's LEAD and EDEX certified. Uh, and she's been in academics for over 20 years, but highly germane to our podcast series. She has always been involved in practice as well as an urban designer, a registered architect, um, as a, and, and as a principal in a design research company. Uh, her research is highly transa- translational. It uses data that can be applied to built projects, and a lot of the projects engage in rigorous evaluation. And um, Mardell, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Well, um, one way that we like to begin uh, is just to ask you, you know, in your own words, of course, who else's words would they be? But in your own words, um, what your main research interests or interests are or what questions, you know, occupy you in your work? Well, my specialization is healthcare design and healthcare design research. So any information we can gather to support this notion of evidence-based design is important to creating uh, physical environments for people that are uh, typically stressed out or suffering in some way. So uh, we have done evidence-based design in other kinds of settings, such as education. But you can imagine in healthcare, people's vulnerability to their environment is especially uh, intense. And um, so within that specialization within healthcare, I am particularly interested in uh, the most vulnerable population. And for me, that has been uh, people in intensive care settings, or um, children, or uh, people experiencing intense mental health issues, a, a range of areas where I think we can intervene as designers and make the world a slightly better place. Uh, can I ask, and this might be a hard question in a short time, but what got you interested in addressing the issues of vulnerable populations rather than, say, you know, designing high-rise hotels or... Right. Well, um, as you mentioned, the hotel uh, issue, they, they are now uh, emphasizing the notion of wellness in hotels, so I don't want to uh, leave that crew uh, without some accolades. Uh, but for myself, I, starting when I was in my late teens, I uh, read a work um, that inspired me to understand that as a designer, I could uh, influence uh, people's interactions and outcomes. And so I think I was sort of, I, I came into the universe with genetic makeup that pushed me down this road. And every time I found myself, I love to design, and that's, that's the truth, but every time I find myself too much in that area, I had to hear this voice calling me back saying, save the world, save the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've, I find myself in, in these fields where um, people don't have a spokesperson or... Um, they might, uh, again, profit by some minor change that I could recommend in the physical environment. So, You know, that's actually interesting, and I have to say it's really uh, describes the way that I have felt as well. Um, I get pulled off onto basic research ideas, but then eventually I wind up 
coming back to real world context. And, and you want to wake up in the morning and feeling like you're making a contribution. Of course, this translates immediately over to teaching because you have the opportunity to inspire and uh, drive the agendas of young people who are looking to find their place in the world. And there's, there's such a need out there. It's really uh, quite a privilege to be able to have that impact as well as on the people who are in the environments that I work with. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, we here in the Bronfenbrenner Center uh, have a focus on evidence-based programs. So if we're developing programs to train workers or to prevent child abuse, we really think about evidence-based programming. Is evidence-based design a little less of a familiar topic to most people, or what does that mean in your work? Well, it's it's actually... uh, a trend, so to speak. Uh, we've actually been gathering data on the environment, applying it to uh, two environments since the 19, at least since the 1960s. But starting uh, around the 1980s, we, and, and greatly influenced by the notion of evidence-based medicine, we sort of pirated that term because we're a baby science. You know, you, you don't meet many architects who do research. We have another kind of tradition, and. Um, there has been a big debate in our field. An interesting thing that's happened is, in the beginning when we talked about evidence-based design, people were, what is this? How does it relate to my practice? And then once they started understanding it, there was a bit of a pushback because as people in the science field, we know that we actually don't have any, we don't provide facts. We provide suggestions for what might be taking place. You get enough suggestions, you start thinking, oh, maybe this really is a good idea. But there was some concern in the design community that we might be leaving our roots in terms of people driving aesthetics. But the reality is um, so many of the decisions we have to make are going to be based on our intuition and experience. The evidence we provide is just enhancing those other kinds of skills and approach to our design work. Absolutely. So it makes, it sounds like it makes the process of gathering information more systematic and basing it on clear evidence. You know, I'm curious and I'm veering into questions that you may not have anticipated, but I find myself getting so interested. Um, as you look back over the course of the design work you've done, um, is there an example of how something that you designed or were involved in the design that you could really determine, you know, had a direct impact on people's lives or something that you did differently in one of these venues that actually um, had what for you was a concrete outcome? Uh, I could say... Concrete, would be, it would be hard to use that term, but we did get predicted outcomes. And um, a good example would be when I finished my uh, doctoral degree, I decided to go back into practice because I didn't want to be an academic who never had real-world experience. So for um, 12 years, I was practicing with healthcare firms in California. And one of our first projects, one of my first projects, was a children's psychiatric facility. At that time, there had not been one built in 50 years. So I wanted to make sure that this new building that we were designing was not replicating pre-existing problems. So um, I had this interesting interaction with the people we interviewed for the project, and they told me that um, they're sort of casually talking about how they use the space, and they say, oh, we we gather, um, at the end of the day, we have to do charting. And I said, what's in your charts? And they said, well, we file these special incident reports. So I said, what's a special incident report? And they said, it's report any time anything negative, particularly acts of aggression, take place, we, we put in this little chart and we say what there was, who was involved and where it was. And this little light went off for me and I thought, oh, there's, maybe there's a relationship between the physical environment and acts of aggression. 
And so by doing this initial study, we saw that there are certain places where kids got in trouble more often than other places. And they tended to be uh, corridors or areas that were very much in the public domain. So they thought, oh, we're going to do this new building and we will eliminate corridors. And I just have this space, and any space that's transitional space that belongs to no one will be easily viewed by staff. So the hope was that by designing it in this new way, that we were going to eliminate some of these trouble zones. And what we found, so we did this evaluation in the old facility, and we went back when the facility was complete, so we call this pre and post occupancy, to see if we'd had to change. And we found the number of incidents was pretty much the same, but we there was a decrease in the uh, number of uh, extremely volatile incidents. So this is one study. Um, can't say this is, you can use this in all cases, but that's the kind of outcome that we were looking for to inform our design process. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm sure that's still kind of novel in some areas too. Um, well, let me ask, I know a lot of your work involves working, I mean, you're here as an academic, but you're working with community organizations, healthcare providers, uh, businesses. So one of the things that, that we're very interested in here in the center um, is how academics work with and relate to and make relationships with community institutions or organizations work. Could you talk a little bit about whatever challenges you might encounter working with these real world providers and, and perhaps any solutions you found or what that's been like for you? Well, mostly I find that the people that seek our support are so, are, are wonderful clients. They are anxious and uh, anxious to have good information and open-minded about receiving it. So, uh, most of my research projects involve collaboration with people who are in professional practice. So these, the, my two most recent projects on mental health involved um, four individuals who are working in design. So they are, they are not trained as researchers, but they are, are exposed enough to it so they understand the goals and objectives and are able to confirm for me ways of expressing the results so that other designers and architects will understand what they are. So that's with regard to actual people I'm working with as part of a research team. In terms of uh, potential communities that I engage with, for example, right now I'm working with the Cancer Resource Center. Later this semester I'll be working with Montefiore Children's Hospital. Uh, I have a potential project with the Veterans Administration. So these are all people off campus um, who, again, welcome our participation and we try to provide some information to help them promote their particular agendas. Um, and so you've found the relationship generally to be pretty harmonious because they um, really need what you have to provide, I would think, as well. I, and many times um, they will come to us and say, what can you do for us? But it's pretty rare that I go to someone and say, we can do this kind of thing for you. Are you interested in this? Well, we've got the beautiful minds of students behind this project that I'm working on or other researchers, and they say, let's see what we can do. You know, do you encounter, um, though, that you may come up against, for example, things that you think would work and regulations prevent it? So, for example, I do a lot of work in nursing homes, yeah. um, and some of the innovative things that people would like to do, uh, they come up not against the site where they're working, but, a big, but against government bureaucracy, regulations that, you know, hamper what they can actually do. Many things have come up for that uh, in that regard for me. One is creating open nurses stations in psychiatric setting, open versus closed, what codes or what the local unions or whatever. People have different agendas. 
And so <clears throat> I do find myself trying to sort out some of those conflicts. Uh, one class, sometimes it's just coming up against the dollars. And um, I found in one case that um, we were recommending that we allow patients to be in beds that had views outside. And this particular hospital, the head of the patient's bed was had the window behind it. So that patient couldn't see outside. They said, we'd love to move it, but we don't have the funds to do it. So we need evidence that shows that we will save dollars by spending this construction cost money. Uh, and uh, so we tried to provide data indicating, we told that return on investment. So you, you add this amenity that is more humane and maybe more effective, and let's see what the cost implications are down the road. So we've has, as researchers in the real world, we've had to demonstrate their positive uh, dollar outcomes when we make these changes, not just benefits to the patients and staff. Yeah, I think that's a really important extra step to take. Um, well, let me ask, as you, you know, kind of thinking about this whole area in which you do research, um, are there a couple of things that you would like uh, the general public to sort of know or understand that based on the work that you have done, if, you know, you could be sharing this podcast with uh, the world in general, are there things that you've learned that you would like to pass on to people in general? I, I would say... Um, the average person is not uh, fully conscious of the impact of the physical environment in their lives. And I notice when we teach classes that involve students outside of the realm of design, when they see these examples, they have this aha moment where they say, oh really, the, the shape of this office, the views I have from the space, all these things are influencing my behavior. And um, by being aware of that, they are going to uh, interact with their physical environment that's more beneficial to them. So this awareness that uh, architecture is an aesthetic art, it's also a social art, and is a transformative uh, piece of life. Um, I'm hoping that people are able to embrace that once they have, have a clear knowledge of what that means. Oh, that's great. And I could go on forever, uh, but our last question is, um, if there's a real-world change that, that you could make, you know, based on your research, if there's one thing um, in any domain that you would wave a magic wand and change based on the evidence that you've collected and the experience you've had. Does anything come to mind? Uh, I would say um, I'd probably build on the last statement. It's more clarity about this relationship between where we are and the, and the views, the, the, the world in which we find ourselves. Um, I think more awareness of the role of nature and access to nature. It would uh, changed a lot of what happens in all kinds of settings, window views, access to natural light. If I could increase awareness about the negative aspects of not providing those things, I think we would create a, a more palatable world. And um, I also think we need to be aware of what's happening outside of our very, um, this wonderful environment we find ourselves, wealthy communities in which we are relative to the rest of the world, being aware of how we might share some of these ideas with lesser developed parts of the world, people with uh, less access to resources. That's pretty broad. It's like back to the save the world routine mm -hmm. that I started out with. I agree. And we are sitting in an office overlooking Cornell's botanical garden so that this has enhanced our conversation already. You know? Definitely, definitely. Well, I really appreciate your joining us. Mardell is going to be giving a talk here at the Bromford Brenner Center, which will be uh, recorded and available. So if you're listening to this podcast in a little bit, you will be able to also hear more of this talk. And um, thanks for coming, and I hope we can have you back someday. Great. Thank you for having me.
For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.